Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. All right, everyone, welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. Today, we have the honor of having Carlos Eustis, the sports anchor at Telemundo 48, uh, who we all know very well through social media and through TV as well, too. Um, he just came back from Tokyo, so we'll definitely be asking him some questions about his experience uh, at the Olympics. So thank you for joining us, Carlos. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Nira. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you, Drew. Um, I actually think I'm very close to Brian in <laughs> different ways. Um, really excited to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you guys invited me. Uh, I always obviously follow you, follow everything you, you guys say. You're, you're, also, you're also big on social media. I mean, come on. Great. Well, well, thank thank you for following us. You make us make us feel uh, special. So, our uh, first question for you, Carlos, just a little bit more. Tell us how you got into uh, broadcasting and, and sports in general. Tell us a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Uh, to make the story not too long, um, I played soccer semi professional in Mexico. I played to uh, the second division uh, with a team uh, called Cruz Azul. I was on their farm system. Uh, my dad then retired me because he said that you know there was a lot of politics involved with with soccer. There's still a lot of politics involved in how you develop a soccer player, but nowadays a little better than it used to be 20 years ago when I was doing that. So he completely took me out of it. Um, but I did play, you know, at a very competitive level. I was 14, 15 years old. Uh, I was one of the really big kids in Mexico. So that helped out. Um, my physiology always helped out. And then I was very good with tactics. So that was one of the things that kind of like promoted me to be move on on the teams compared to, to compared to other kids, even though I was not the most technically gifted one. I'm pretty decent, but it's not, it wasn't like, if you compare me to the rest of my teammates, my teammates were fantastic and I was just okay. Uh, but tactically, I was very sound, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to move on. Um, once I stopped playing, I moved to the States. I moved to Miami with my family. I played high school. I didn't play college because I got a full-ride scholarship for grades. Uh, I ended up using that scholarship to go to school for film. And But my parents are actors, so it was kind of like in the family. They were not really happy that I was doing it, but they were like, you know what? If that's what you want, like it's okay. We're going to support it. And while I was going to school for film, I was also coaching soccer already. My high school decided to keep me as a coach since I wasn't playing college. So I coached uh, high school soccer for 12 years. I actually was able to win two state championships in Florida, which is actually pretty competitive. So that was that was good in, in my career-wise. But with that background, uh, I met one day playing soccer. Uh, they invited us to play a pickup game. I, I met this guy who was a, pro, a producer for, for, for sports in, in, in Univision, which is the competition of Telemundo. And he was the first person that was like, have you ever, like, have you ever thought about doing sports on television? And I was like, oh, I was like 20 years old at the time. I was still in college. And I was like, well, that does sound interesting because, you know, I watch a lot of sports and television. It's like, come over and I'll, I'll show you more or less, you know, kind of how the business is and, and we'll go from there. I went, I was really nosy. So I started throwing stats. Like, are you sure about that stat? Wasn't that in 2005 when this is such and such happened? And he was like, man, how do you know that top of your head? I'm like, I just watch a lot of sports. So he eventually offered me a job. I worked in Univision for a year and a half. And after that, uh, they didn't renew my contract. I went back to coaching. And then my dad had been working at Telemundo for a certain time. So they were looking for, a, they, they told me that they were looking for somebody who would be a, to be a sports producer um, for, for a new show that they were developing on, on Telemundo that was actually bilingual. So I applied for that job. I got it. 
And I started there, uh, it was six years that I did uh, sports producing. I was a line producer, I was a field producer. I actually traveled to a lot of the games that Telemundo will, you know, will produce. But when I was leaving the Univision, my boss was like, hey, listen, I'm gonna tell you something, take care or leave it. That's, you know, it's up to you. But I think you have the personality to be on air. Um, that's something I should explore if you like. I mean, I'm not saying that you have to do it, but it's, it's there if you want. So I kind of prepared myself for that. And those, those six years, I kept taking like acting lessons and voice lessons and, and try to prepare for more of an on-camera persona uh, besides the work I was doing behind. And when Telemundo got the rights to the World Cup in 2015, uh, I actually, you know, begged my bosses to do that casting. It's like, please let me try to do this. And they let me call games. And I ended up calling games for the U15, the, the U20 World Cup, the U17 World Cup, the Women's World Cup, and uh, Beach Soccer song. And, but I still wanted to be full-time on air. And that was something I was, I was not able to do there. And I quit. <laughs> I was like, you know what, guys, I love you. I love working with you, but I'm going to go try to do this somewhere else. I became a YouTuber for a whole, almost a whole year. Uh, it was actually going very well, but I applied for a job in McAllen, Texas, which is in the border with Mexico down in the Rio Grande Valley. And I landed that job and that was my first on-air job. It was, it was the same thing I'm doing now with sports, uh, the local sports anchor for Telemundo there. And then after two years, I was actually, I got called to do the, the Women's World Cup and the, and the World Cup in Russia. Those were my two big events already on air as a reporter. And then they called me over here and they told me there was the possibility to move to the Bay Area. And I love the area. So I was like, before they finished offering me the, the possibility, I was like, okay, I mean, that's it. Like <laughs> I'm moving. Um, so we move over here and it's been, it's been two years already. Pandemic hit a little bit. I, I haven't been able to enjoy the area as much as I, I liked. And right now Tokyo also came up and I was able to go and come back. Yeah, that's great. So it must've been pretty fun to go to Tokyo, even though on screen, it looked a lot different. Um, what was your biggest surprise from covering the Olympics, either from the athletes or the atmosphere there? Uh, I think surprise was it was I wouldn't say surprise, but it was it was it was strange. I mean, this this were my third Olympics. I did I did London, I did Rio, and this was my third Olympics. I actually was on site for Rio, and there was just something about you know it's it was strange to be in a place where it had such a big event and not see people from everywhere and like there's no like traffic of people moving and and and, and that kind of sort of thing. Like the parties that's always involved with that. Uh, there's a lot of events that the Olympics actually do around the Olympics that you're able to attend and they're really fun. And those things were all gone. Uh, it seemed very like, you know, methodic to like go to the hotel, go to the venue, go to the Olympic Village, talk to the athletes, the athletes will go out. And then the athletes were also in, in that same, you know, the kind of same realm where they were able to talk to each other in, in um, at the diner uh, or, or the restaurant where, where they were able, actually able to serve food. They actually were able to interact kind of there a little bit, at least take pictures and, and run into each other while they were moving uh, here and there. But that international area that usually the international plaza is called that usually will have a lot of movement of people wasn't there. Um, so to me, that was the only thing that was, you know, it was it was strange. It, was, it just it just gave you that feeling that you were covering the Olympics, but it didn't feel like it was really the Olympics because there's no people. The events were isolated. So to me, that was the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that was like very different from others. And so, Carlos, when you were there, what was the uh, biggest story amongst the athletes and competitors? like? For us watching here in the U.S., obviously, I think the biggest one that stood out was the challenges that Simone Biles was facing. Mm -hmm. um, but what did you see as like the biggest um, thing going on when you were there? Uh, I mean, all the athletes mentioned it in a certain capacity. What happened to to, to Simone? I, I was I was able to talk to at least twenty to twenty five of the athletes who competed uh, from from the Hispanic countries, 
And a lot of them talk about, oh, my psychologist to get here, going through the pandemic with my psychologist. Oh, I, I had a lot of, you know, a lot of the mental work to come here. It was not so much, and a lot of, a lot of the sound bites I was getting, it was a lot about, you know, the preparation was tough or, or some of them actually benefit from it because they were in a bad spot because they were injured and the recovery was not going to be good, good enough for 2020. And all of a sudden they gave them a whole year to recover better. So I think that was kind of like the, the, the biggest, you know, topic among the athletes in general, that it was a thing about mental, you know, about mental health to, to get there. And a lot of people, they wouldn't see that work because even though Simone was so vocal about it and talked about it, a lot of them did that work and they just kind of like, you know, overlooked it and say that was part of my preparation to be here. And that's it. Um, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, with your experience at prior Olympics, prior, you know, large, you know, international events, have you ever heard athletes talk that openly about their preparation with a psychologist? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I feel like, I feel like athletes in general is, is something that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have an exact time frame, but maybe in the past five to 10 years, it's something that it's, you know, broader. I remember when I was playing, um, I was the first generation that was trying to get into metrics and then starting to do even yoga and, and, and other things that were not necessarily focused, focused on, on soccer. Also about the preparation of how you prepare physically for these games, because most of the time they would just put you on, on like a one single track of, of physical development. And that's actually not ideal for every single you know, body type and, and every single player. And we did have some sessions with psychologists and a lot of players, you know, resented, right? It was like, why do I have to do this? Like, it's, this is not, it's not soccer. This is not something I have to do. So I feel like there's been, you know, a constant flow of, of change in that sense of, of players doing it. And I feel like they've mentioned, like they, they would have mentioned before, but it was not something that was like very specific. This in general was like, you know what? I could be in a bad place and that would not let me compete to compare to like, well, I have to compete regardless. And maybe I was there, maybe I put in the work, maybe the work wasn't good, or, or but it was not a topic. I think that would be the, the, main, the main difference between even five years ago and now. Kind of piggybacking on the Olympics, uh, Carlos, you know, a lot of times I'm sure that you develop relationships with athletes and teams, and that helps influence your reporting. I kind of compare that to what was in the Olympics, because I'm sure you didn't have as much contact with the athletes, but still trying to tell a story uh, of what's going on. Well, I actually was, I think on this particular Olympics, I had more contact with the athletes because one of the reasons why it was harder to cover them is because usually you're able to grab stories around it or maybe you go cover the event and get you know get to talk to the people like sometimes you focus on the fans and it depends on what you're assigned to in this specific case i was assigned to the, the athletes very specifically and because they had nothing else to do either those windows to talk to them became a little bigger so by the time they will get there we'll set up they had to set up in a very specific you know way that they had to be like 10, 12 feet away from me, probably a little more. Um, and you had to set up the camera and you had to set up the microphone. You get to talk to them. You get to talk to, uh, to other people there in the, uh, in the delegation. And I, I think that it was actually, and now with social media too, uh, I will talk to them, do the, do the interview, then kind of like a lot of them don't have a lot of followers because, you know, it all depends on the sports. Not all the sports get the same viewership. So a lot of them didn't have a lot of followers. And I was like, let me help, try, help you out. Let's see if we can drag some, you know, some traction to what you're doing. And I would do a lot of stories with them and I started following them. So now, like, even now, like I would post something and I'll get, I'll get one of the athletes, like send me a message and be like, oh my God, that was hilarious. Or yes, I totally agree. Or, or backwards, like uh, one of the guys from the Argentina volleyball team, which was the first person I interviewed when I got in Tokyo, his name is Federico Pereira. 
Pede, when he was going for the bronze medal, I hadn't seen him since being at the Olympics, but I was like, hey, man, like, good luck. I'm really, like, I'm really excited for you, this and that. And like, oh, thank you, Carlos, whatever. So I think it, between social media and how these Olympics were portrayed, it was actually better for me to, to develop a relationship with them. And how do you feel like when you're doing kind of more, you know, non-Olympic type sports casting here, do you feel like, um, you know, your relationship with the teams or the athletes changes a little bit how you report? Do you ever get, you know, the teams being like, oh, we don't want that story going out or don't present it this way? How do you kind of balance that? I, I've been lucky enough uh, when, when you look at how the landscape in the, in the Bay Area is, uh, we're the only Spanish channel that covers them. Um, they have a lot of coverage, obviously, because they're big teams, and a lot of them getting get national coverage, right? Like the Niners, for example, or, or even the Giants. Right now, they're getting a lot more more eyeballs because you know they're they're doing really well. The San Jose Earthquakes in the Hispanic community are really big because they have a coach that had coach in one of the biggest teams in Mexico. So they get a lot of eyeballs from outside, but they also don't have a lot of eyeballs in, in the Hispanic community right here. So. They collaborate a lot with us. We have really good relationships with basically every team here in the Bay Area. And the only time they will tell us something is when, when they actually give you something that you're in charge of. For example, I did the, the jersey launch with the San Jose Earthquakes. And now I can say that I had the jersey five days before it came out. <laughs> so <laughs> the only thing they asked me was like, please don't show it to anybody. It's, it's yours. Keep it. I, we want you to help you with the, with the launch. So I prepare a video for the day of the launch so I could have it ready. But that's kind of a relationship I have with them. And I feel like actually the pandemic helped out in the sense that we're getting more stuff that we wouldn't get before because just in constraints of travel, if I wanted to do something with the San Francisco Giants and then I wanted to do something with the uh, South Earthquakes or, or, with the, or with the Niners, they're so far apart from each other that I wouldn't physically be able to go from one to the other. But now I can do those three interviews back to back to back. And even for the, for the teams and for the players, it's become a little more comfortable to be like what we're doing right now. Like you're in your office doing it. I didn't have to come over to you and you had to set up a space and, and we had to make it work. Now it's like, well, the, the, the time works. He's at home. He's not even practicing. Let's have an interview. So I think that's, that has helped in a sense with, with the pandemic. Yeah, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about your athletic career. So for those of us that follow you, we know that you've had a couple surgeries um, and one of them was an ACL tear. And obviously this is pretty common for soccer players. What was it like um, for you recovering from your first ACL injury? And what was the biggest surprise for you in terms of the injury or the recovery or what it was like to go through for our other athletes that go through ACL injury and rehabilitation? Well, the, the worst part about it was that when that happened, I had played, I have stopped playing competitively at all. Like I had to completely stop playing. I was like, you know what? Uh, I have been playing professional, semi-professional at some point, and I stopped. I played with some college players. I played in a semi-professional team after that. Um, that will be kind of like the NASL level, um, kind of like what the what the Oakland Roots were last year. I was playing at the level, and then I was playing another league that was also with ex-professional players, but it was really rough. And I was like, I even I remember telling my dad specifically, like, you know, I'm gonna stop playing this league because I'm gonna get injured and it's not worth it. I literally stopped playing 10 days before that. It's my birthday, the day after my birthday, they asked us to play for a game. Uh, it was to get, to gather money for kids with cancer. My team's getting blown out 9-1 and the goalkeeper comes out and decides to clean me from behind and, and I ended up suffering the tear. And it was just, the, the biggest part mentally frustrating was that at that point, I read a, I read a study that it was basically like 4% of all ACR tears are due to trauma. Like most of, most of the time it's because, you know, you're a weekend warrior, you don't take care of yourself, you land wrong and you put too much weight and it happens. Or, or maybe you're just unlucky in that sense of making that cut. 
I actually got into trauma. So to me, it was first like to realize like this happened. I can't hold a judge against the guy who gave me the injury. It's especially because of the kind of game it was. So that was the first, the first you know thing I had to put over the edge. I also had a problem that I went to, I went to get the the, the MRI, and when it came out, they said I didn't have a full tear. Um, and I didn't have surgery. I was like, oh, that's perfect. So I went to rehab for a couple of months. They told me I was fine. And then I went back to playing. And it was like three or four months later that by myself, I made a cut and I felt that pop again. And I was like, you know what? There's something wrong here. Like I need to go look at it more in detail, but I'm going to let it, because the other ones I was a little more rushed to see what happened. So I think I might have gone to the MRI a little sooner than I should have. Maybe with the swelling hadn't gone completely down and, and nobody really like told me about it. And then the second time I went more, I was like, let me let me really swell this down. I'll, I'll go talk to Dr. Uribe, who I'm sure you, you guys are familiar with, and 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 see what happens. I went, he said, yes, eventually that you actually have a tear. Um, I did take, and, and I, I'll say this, I actually took a year, a complete year between when it happened and when I went to actually have the surgery. And I kept running on it because a lot of people have this idea that you cannot do sports or run or do things on a, on a torn ACL. And you can, you shouldn't <laughs> put that out, but I did it. And luckily for me, um, my quads and my hamstrings were strong enough that I did not put more injury on it that could have been like I didn't have a huge meniscus there or something that could be associated with that. Once I had the surgery, obviously, Dr. Yuri is a great physician and it's a sports medicine. That was another thing that I was really concerned with that a lot of people, when they get injured, they don't have the access or maybe they don't think about that. If you do the recovery with a, with a sports physician, they have in mind that you want to go back to play because sometimes the, the fixes are just fixes and it's fine and you'll be able to have a normal life but I wanted to go back and play I was 25 years old and I wanted to keep on running so I had the surgery it told me very serious like you won't be able to play professional sports I'm like dog do I look like I'm gonna play professional sports from now on uh and I went to, to rehab in the same I pick a rehab place that rehab athletes because that's another thing it's like it's not the same kind of rehab that you have when we have a lot of like older people that have maybe knee replacements going to this place like somebody that actively you know uses their, their knees and, and, and shoulders and, and, and things to actually perform and then that top level so I went to this rehab place um, called pancreas therapy and a lot of baseball and football players go there uh, while I was there I ran into Mike Lowell consistently uh, Jimmy Graham was still playing uh, I think he was at that point he was with the Packers and he came in like day in day out he would see me practicing like I even had a sort of relationship with him because he would come in and say hey you're putting the work I see that good job and I was like thanks and and then that I knew it was going to be a long recovery I also knew that compared to because you know you hear the time frames right like for example like Dr. Nero talks about them all the time but you got to realize that the time frame for an athlete a professional athlete it's not the athlete it's not a time frame for you because a professional athlete is going to do that day in day out and go home and rest I don't I needed to do that and then go go to work and have a, a different life so I was able to at least get three months off work with, with short-term disability, mainly because of the crutches, because the, the, the moving up and down the building, I was able to you know push that a little bit and at least let me get out of the crutches. But once I was out of the crutches, it was this challenge of like making sure that my movement was not contra counterproductive to my rehab and just go to rehab, try to go to rehab like as much as I could. And I ended up doing a year and I need like 14 months of therapy. So, I mean, again, like I feel like my discipline just because I was able to play sports at, at that level helped out, but I could see how it really frustrating for maybe some of like, you know, high school kids that are not used to that level of having to commit every day to three, two, three hours to, to put it together. But I was able to come back and then, well, uh, Dr. Philly can talk to you a little bit about what happened after for the second surgery. 
Yeah, we'll leave that one alone. That was, I think, the easiest surgery of the year. Um, I think it's a really good, you make a lot of really good points. I think one of them is that partial tears, we often don't know because especially in kids, you feel something, your knee swells up a little bit, maybe you go to the doctor and they say, well, it's a sprain. It doesn't feel that different. Um, so we don't know how often people have partial tears, but that feeling of instability when you try to cut again is pretty common. Um, and I think the other thing that's a really good point is that professional athletes go back, but it's still a nine month recovery and that's all they're doing. They're being paid to get better. They take care of their bodies. I won't say 24 seven, cause we do see that they do other things, but they're not going to work and working a desk job. They're not taking three weeks off from their rehab because they have to travel for family duties. That's their job to get better. And it's still a nine month recovery. Um, I, I've got one more question that uh, is really important, given your love of um, soccer. Who's your favorite Ted Lasso character? Oh, of course, Danny Rojas. <laughs> like, Danny Rojas, my boy. And I actually started, uh, the name of the actress, Cristo Fernandez, and I started following him recently on, on social media. So I, 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 I am making that call that I'm going to get to talk to him at some point. Uh, so, yeah, well, there's a lot of common between, with, between Danny, and, Danny and Ed. Uh-huh. I, I can see the resemblance and how much you like doing what you do. So, hey, Carlos, as we uh, we'll finish up, we'll ask you one really, really important question. Do you think um, Trey Lance or Jimmy Garoppolo will be starting week one for the 49ers? Oh, that, I, that's tough. Come on. No, I, I think I know. I think I think Jimmy is going to be starting week one because uh, we're talking about week one, like just week one. We, you, they've said it since last year. Um, there's never been a, a time because, you know, like after covering sports for a certain amount of time, you know, when they give you, you know, the typical spiel of like, yeah, yeah, that he's our guy or whatever, but no, 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 nobody on the NFL has ever pushed so hard for, for a guy as John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan have done. Like every single press conference, they will tell you straight up and they knew they were going to draft Lance and they will still be like, no, he's our guy and he's our guy. And you can feel it on the team. Like even when you're going out to the practices and, and you see the press conferences, there's there's a, there's a lot of camaraderie between Trey and Jimmy, and I think regardless of, of the development of Trey, and we saw it on the preseason game on the Saturday. There's still a lot of things that need to click with Trey to be a, a full professional, you know, NFL starting quarterback. He has some great potential. He does some great things, like that 80 yard touchdown was fantastic, and and his release on some plays are pretty ridiculous. But there's still things that he has to work on, and I feel like as long as Jimmy is actually healthy even though he's not considered on the elite of quarterbacks, he's very good at, at game management. It's not something that Kyle Shanahan likes, and that was actually what was able to take the Niners to the Super Bowl. So I do see Jimmy starting, and then who knows what happens. I mean, hopefully Jimmy can stay healthy just for his own sake more than anything else, and, and we'll, we'll have to wait for Trey, but then Trey's definitely the future. Yeah, Drew, Drew, unfortunately, is a Packers fan, so he's just sitting there and saying... Not unfortunately. Well, Drew's just thinking, God, I wish my quarterback was as nice as uh, Garoppolo and everybody else on the 49ers. Oh, well, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think we learned a lot. We look forward to seeing you more on TV and social media. And, um, you know, uh, football is life. Football is life. And thank you, everybody. I mean, thank you, everybody, for the, for the questions. Thanks for the time. I know you're, you're technically more busy than I am, even with my travels. But uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And then, obviously, I... I I follow you also on social media and, and gotta keep up that good work because there's a lot of you give a lot of insight to things that you know my people some overlook and or that take for granted especially so I think that's that's why every time you guys comment and, and do these kind of podcasts and everything it's, it's really important for 
for everybody to learn. We're in a platform where everybody can learn nowadays, um, where you can actually look for the information if you want to. And I think that's really important. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Carlos. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Mira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.